Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Friends, we're so glad you're here today for a fascinating program, um, a survey of Yiddish art song. We're here with a great teacher, Anthony Russell, who it's great to see again, who is a multidisciplinary artist specializing in Yiddish culture. Anthony's work with Klezmer Trio Varetsky Pass resulted in convergence and exploration of a century of African-American and Ashkenazi Jewish music. His recent release on the Borscht Beat label with accordionist and keyboardist Dimitri Gaskin, Cosmopolitan, features their original settings of Yiddish, modernist poetry for voice and string ensemble. Anthony has also been an essayist in a number of publications, including The Forward, Tablet Magazine, JTA, Protocols, Full Stop Magazine, Ion Press, and Jewish Currents. He lives in Atlanta with his husband of eight years, Rabbi Michael Rothbaum. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. So uh, I'm going to start out with a little taste of what we're going to talk about today. And here we go. All right. Good jobbers, good jobbers, renowned Yiddish art song singer Sidor Belarsky singing a Hasidic-flavored song titled Good Shabbos from his 1957 album Favorite Yiddish Songs, which is a good starting place for our conversation today. As opposed to wishing you good Shabbos, I wish you all got health a good afternoon. My name is Anthony Mordechai Russell. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And for the past 10 years, I've been a performer arranger and composer in the genre we'll be exploring this afternoon, Yiddish Kunstlieder, the concertized Yiddish art song. Preparing for this afternoon's session, I found myself faced with a certain tension that has consistently bubbled up for me ever since I decided to lend my voice to the purpose of Jewish music making. That tension is on the borderlines of performance, a world as a former opera singer I'd already been living in when I came to Jewish music and the borderlines of Jewish prayer 
an act that has both a private and a public function in the practice of Judaism. Though I didn't know it at the time, I think my own attraction to Yiddish art song was based in its consistent play with these borders in ways that were freeing to me as someone who is always working to be completely emotionally and spiritually engaged in what I'm doing when I open my mouth to sing. Whether it's in a performance, a moment of prayer, or some excitingly indeterminate space in between these two moments. The performer of Yiddish art song at any moment is turning the concert stage into a bima and the recital hall into the forest grove in which the Baal Shem Tov was recounting his very first parables. At this point, I'd like to remind you that the word bima, frequently um, most often used in a synagogue context, also means a stage a platform for performance. Perhaps there is no genre of Ashkenazi Jewish music in which this conflation is made more explicit than in the Yiddish art song. So what is the Yiddish art song? The Yiddish art song developed out of a couple of pre-existing non-Jewish musical phenomena from the 19th century, namely the art song and music nationalism. The art song, which had its roots in the aesthetic romantic movement of the early 19th century, usually consisted of musical settings of works by contemporary poets that were meant to be performed in fashionable and culturally sophisticated settings, like the salons of Vienna or Berlin, most of which incidentally were run by wealthy and assimilated Jews. The very same ones that developed the reform movement, but that's a whole other session for a whole other time. Another phenomenon that was running parallel to the art song and also coming out of the Romantic movement was musical nationalism, as various portions of Europe began to form themselves into the countries and nations that we recognize today and began to create art, literature, culture, and music that was animated by the cultural identities, customs, legends, and histories of these nations. Yiddish art song draws on both of these things art song and musical nationalism and makes them specifically Jewish, taking its text from contemporary Yiddish poetry, folk songs, Jewish prayers in Hebrew, Aramaic and the Yiddish vernacular and pairing those texts with music imbued with culturally diverse and geographically specific flavors of Jewish Eastern Europe. So what genres make up Yiddish art song? The creation of music imbued with the culturally diverse and geographically specific flavors of Jewish Eastern Europe means that in Yiddish art song, one encounters a wild combination of musical uh, material from all over the place, from traditional Ashkenazi synagogue music, chazonis, which is specifically cantorial music, Hasidic nigunim and piutim, which is a huge presence in the stuff that makes up uh, Yiddish art song, there's Ashkenazi Jewish folk songs, work songs, genres of songs sung primarily by women, non-Jewish Eastern European folk material and dance forms, theatrical and Yiddish operetta music, straight up through composed classical music, popular music of the time, quasi-liturgical music. The sources and influences go on and on, and often one can hear multiple influences in just one song. I'm now gonna give you a rather extreme example an excerpt from the 1950 album, Shandala Sings the Songs of Her People, 
which is performed by the cantorial phenomena Shandela di Chazenta, who was born Jean Gornish from Philadelphia. This excerpt is from the song titled Mein Städtele. absolutely love her voice. It's a very unusual sort of combination of traditional Ashkenazi Jewish vocalization um, within the context of chazonis, within the context of cantorial music. But you can also hear a little bit of like 1950s pop voice too. And somehow she some, somehow manages to combine these two different kinds of vocalization into one kind of song. Um, what's really interesting is she's singing in the lowest part of her voice, and by doing that, she's kind of imitating the great tenors that were usually chazans in a conventional um, Ashkenazi Jewish cantorial situation. <clears throat> so here's another example. This is Sidor Bolarski singing a concertized gloss on a Hasidic material um, in a song titled Malava Malka Nigen from his album from the 50s titled Hasidic Melodies, interpreted by Sidor Belarski. All right, so here we go. Let's give you another little taste. Und zu alle Liebe, gute 
tell that this is based on Hasidic uh, material because he starts out with a wordless melody and sings a verse and then goes back into a wordless melody um, coming from this Hasidic practice of Nigunam of singing wordless melodies as a way of um, religiously sort of expressing oneself not only to one's fellow man but also to God as well. Judy has a question I see. Um, isn't this also um, in an area that would not be available to women as Hazanud was, yes, I'm actually going to talk about this later, about how the stage for Yiddish singers allowed women to inhabit spaces that they traditionally couldn't in conventional, traditional Jewish spaces. So you're very, very um, astute there. You, you're giving away all of my best stuff at the beginning of the program. So we even have Eastern European Ashkenazi Jewish musical forms that were brought to Israel being arranged for performance in the diaspora, as we have here in Bina Landau's rendition of the Nigm Bialik on her album titled Sing With Me. And I think on this one, she has a little intro in which she uh, speaks to her audience in the language that they are assumed to understand. And you'll let me know if you understand that language as well. I love this song because in the little intro, uh, the man is saying, um, we have new songs coming out of Israel. But what's fascinating is in, 19, in the 1950s, it totally made sense to have um, an album of wordless melodies that were coming out of the culture that was being produced in the newly created state of Israel 
but to present those to listeners of this kind of material in Yiddish, which was a language people still would have been speaking, especially the consumers of this particular kind of music on vinyl, as it would have been at the time. So who was listening to this music? I can tell you so often this question comes up to me as far as being both a listener and a performer of this music. Who was this music for? Let's get the obvious out of the way. It was music by Jews for Jewish audiences, specifically Yiddish-speaking, or at very least Yiddish-conversant Ashkenazi Jewish audiences. As evidenced by the tours, performers of Yiddish art song often went on, audiences for this music were both national and international, performing in both high art music spaces, like classical recital and concert halls, and in more Hamish Jewish communal spaces, like synagogue multipurpose halls, Arbiter Ring Workmen's Circle Community Centers, and the like. Domestically, concert performance of Yiddish art song tended to be centered on New York, as was many institutional aspects of American Jewish life in the mid-century. As also evidenced by the sheer amount of recorded output there is of Yiddish art song on vinyl, audiences for this material were immense, and obviously, in addition to hearing it live, also wanted to listen to it in the comfort of their homes. So another question that comes up is, what was the function of this music? When I'm trying to imagine the context in which people were listening to concertized versions of Hasidic and Ashkenazi folk music and their sparkling atomic age post-war homes, I can't help wondering what was the function of this music in the lives of people who listened to it. This is an interesting question because if you look at the contents of the music itself, all the different worlds that converge in Ashkenazi Jewish concertized music, some interesting dynamics begin to present themselves. In my own unscientific analysis, the motivations that seem to come up the most often are nostalgia for an Eastern European past, the sounds of Jewish prayer, and the formation of a culturally Jewish identity. The plain fact is that this music, especially in its recorded form, had the following functions. Invoking Jewish Eastern Europe for people who could not return or perhaps had no desire to physically return to Jewish Eastern Europe. Presenting Hasidism and Hasidic practice for cultural consumption to people who weren't Hasidic, but perhaps had Hasidism as a part of their personal or familial history and identified Hasidism as an animating force in Jewish culture and life. Creating music for the consumption of people conversant in Ashkenazi Jewish religious practice, prayer, and musical expression. I'm not necessarily trying to say that Yiddish art song was a way for Ashkenazi Jewish folks living in the diaspora to keep themselves Jewish, but I'm kind of saying yes, Yiddish art song was one way in which many Ashkenazi Jewish folks living in the diaspora kept themselves Jewish, kept up a connection with who they were and where they were from. Yiddish art song was a kind of mirror in which the 20th century Ashkenazi Jew saw a picture of themselves. Jewish Eastern Europe and the dynamic Hasidism that sprung up there in the 18th and 19th centuries could be accessed by a generation and population that had become more culturally sophisticated and affluent than the geographical and cultural roots of the music could have ever imagined. Here's Bina Landau singing the Baal Shem Tov's Zemral from her album titled, Sing With Me. 
There's something that's really interesting and slightly transgressive in a piece of music like this, despite the fact that hearing it now, it sounds just like, you know, your regular piece of Ashkenazi Jewish music, um, a minor keyed melody, slightly upbeat, a lot of I, 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 I. Um, And the thing that's interesting about this is that it's a woman who is restaging a dynamic between her as the Rebbe, her as the... Um, religious leader of a group of Hasidim and the chorus who are acting as the Hasidim, as the followers of the Rebbe. In this song, essentially, a woman is taking on the role of a traditional Jewish leader in the Hasidic tradition, and all of the chorus are being her Hasidim. And it's interesting that this is a role that a woman is um, in this context, in the context of Jewish performance, as opposed to traditional Jewish prayer, a woman is allowed to take on and assume. And this is something that the audience is actively consuming as well. I'm now going to play um, a singer, a really great Yiddish uh, art song singer by the name of Louis Danto, singing Michael Mashmalon. And this famous poem um, has the subtitle, A Yeshiva Bocher's Lament. It's featuring a melody that was adapted from Gomorrah Nigen, um, a traditional Ashkenazi Jewish melody for chanting Talmud. And in this song, a depressed young yeshiva boy is looking out of a rainy window and thinking about what the meaning of life is. Um, this, this, this sort of dynamic, this melancholy youth dynamic that one often encounters in, in Yiddish culture and in Yiddish literature has really raised to the various height of kind of lyrical beauty and expression through this song. You'll hear it in just a moment. Субтитры 
That gives you an idea of just some of the kind of amazing vocal artistry that was a part of um, the act of performing a Yiddish art song. What's interesting is that, again, this song is transgressive in a way, in that it is um, a yeshiva bocher, um, someone who's really looked on as being sort of the future of the Jewish people, complaining about how difficult his life is in the impoverished world of Eastern European Ashkenazi Jewish life. Um, but he's not just complaining about his life, he's doing it to the melody of the text that he studies. This melody is derived from um, the, the melody that Jews would use to study Talmud to. So it's like he's taking this melody of Talmud and he's actually singing a story about his own life. This is the kind of really interesting sort of multi-leveled amount of cultural material that one would get in a genre like the Yiddish art song. Here is Sidor Belarski singing Achris Hayomim, in which a child recounts to their grandfather what they've read in the Tanakh, specifically about prophecies about the end of the world and the messianic age. Sorry, let's do that again. Sog mir seide en fer mir Gelernt hab ich in Tanach A wunderbare schöne Sach As noch kommen wird a Zeit Wenn von Nont und von Weit Well, Menschen, not die Welt, verwandeln in a What I love about this particular song is that the composer, a man by the name of Israel Alter, actually takes the melody of um, Ashkenazi Jewish Haftorah reading that you hear on Saturday afternoon, and he's put that melody into the mouth of a child in this song who's talking about all the prophecies that this child has read in the Tanakh. 
about how someday the lion will walk with the lamb and a child will lead them and great peace will come upon the earth and mankind will soon be, you know, brothers and sisters together. Um, but he's taken this melody that one usually hears in relationship to prophecy in relationship to the Haftorah, in which prophecy usually is heard in the context of the Torah service, and he's put it in the mouth of this child. And the interesting thing is at the very end of the song, this feels extremely relevant now, he says to his grandfather, if mankind is such a small thing in the realm of what the world is, the greatness of the world, the greatness of God's creation, how is it that mankind is the one keeping this wonderful age of peace and brotherhood to actually happen. And the end of the song is really a kind of question. And it fits in very strongly with this Jewish tradition of giving children the most important questions that can be asked in a Jewish space. Think about when you usually hear children asking questions within the Jewish space uh, traditionally. That is the Passover Seder right? You can't really go through the Seder without having the children ask the questions. The song, in a way, is an encapsulation of that same sort of philosophy that children are often the ones who ask the most important questions. Here, I have um, another singer by the name of Masha Binya singing an adaptation of a Hasidic Shabbos melody um, and kind of turning it into a Yiddish song about the domestic experience of Shabbos. And once again, um, we have another Yiddish singer who is giving a Yiddish introduction um, to the song that she's about to sing to her audiences, who, of course, are assumed to speak Yiddish. I really love the organ on this one. It's a little kind of jazzy organ thing, so you'll, you'll hear. Next, I want to give you kind of like a full idea of like the the different ways in which Yiddish art song can be sort of realized is an immensely operatic uh, rendition by the famous opera singer Jan Pierce of a Hasidic flavored prayer slash art song in Hebrew and Yiddish 
um, called Adudala, which is um, arguably one of the most famous sort of Yiddish art songs to sort of make it out of um, specifically kind of Yiddish art song spaces and into um, kind of larger Jewish music spaces. It's this very sort of operatic. It's been very comprehensively arranged for orchestra. You'll hear. This one is always a little crazy for me because a doodala is basically a song where uh, uh, a Jew is addressing God as do, like as kind of the most sort of casual and intimate way in which you could refer to someone as opposed to referring to God as in, in a formal fashion, a Jew is, is talking to God as, as do. And this concept that you could talk to God like that is basically um, sort of comes from Hasidism. Um, so what's interesting is that when you look at the roots of Hasidism, they're usually, they're, they're rural, they're very humble, they're based in, um, in a, a Jewish experience of the everyday. And yet we have this song, which has been um, arranged for, it sounds like an entire orchestra. There's harps, there's, you know, brass, there's strings. You know, if you can imagine like a Jew praying to God by themselves in the forest in the 18th century, you don't get an entire orchestra there to accompany that by happening. And also, um, you know, when they say, you know, a master of the universe, they don't go, right? But somehow in the world of, of Yiddish art song, like the ability to take what feels like a very sort of basic and very tender and very small and very intimate experience of being Jewish suddenly becomes this large sort of beautiful artistic thing. It's something as large as the world, as large as an opera house, as large as an orchestra. And it really becomes something larger, not only something that people in the audience um, are deeply familiar with, but also something that is a, a piece of high art, something that is very sort of of aesthetically beautiful. Um, so finally, we have a song by Sira Belarski, who is singing in the vernacular, he's singing in Yiddish. Um, it's a prayer called Atafila. And I just, 
this is a this is a song that I've sung many times um, because I think in many ways it embodies a lot of um, the complicated nature of of praying to God in a Jewish context. I'll give you some of the lyrics here. It says, "Great God, examine my prayer and give me this one thing. I'm content with very little, and I pray very much." Turn me back to my belief and my reliance on mankind. Cover the bitterness in my heart. I will no longer hold it, only blessing. All right, here's Atafila, a prayer. So because of um, research and because of the fact that I, I've recorded this song and I'm one of the, I'm uh, not recorded this song, but rather I've performed this song and there's a recording of it out there on YouTube, um, a relative of the poet who wrote the words to the song actually was in touch and I was able to ask him um, how this poem came about because it's a very intense poem. Basically the poem goes on to say, is um, to ask God, to give the person back the ability to believe in anything because what this person has seen has been so horrible that they are basically unable to pray to pray at all they're asking basically god to give them back the ability to believe and they will ask for nothing more it turns out that this poem was written in direct response to the holocaust and that the person who wrote this poem was actually fled europe and eventually ended up living um, both in the United States and in Israel. Um, it's a very interesting piece of music because it takes the private words of the person who's praying and it puts it to a melody that sounds a lot like a melody that would be used for a, a piece of prayer from a siddur, a piece of prayer from um, our tradition. So it kind of takes this private prayer and it raises it up to the status of a prayer that one would hear being davened out of Sidur. I personally find Yiddish art song immensely inspirational 
as Jews continue this process of trying to articulate ourselves and our Jewishness through culture and art and spirituality in ways that are culturally and geographically specific to our histories and our ways of being in the world. As a Jew and as a creative person working in the medium of Jewishness, my work is inflected by the sounds and the aesthetics of Jewish prayer and the animating force of Hasidism on modern Judaism and it's inspirational to me to have so many dynamic and engaging examples of past artists, composers, singers, and musicians who were also creating new work that was imbued with all of this. It's just interesting to sort of observe these sort of spaces of performance and of prayer, kind of the way in which these songs take prayer and turn it into a communal sort of experience. Um, being a singer of this music has uh, influenced my own prayer, my own tefillahs. It's just really interesting thinking about how this genre features performers who blur the lines between the liturgical and the music of the concert hall. This music also broadens concepts of what Jewish prayer music sounds like, where it happens, and what its function was. What does it mean that there is so much of this sort of prayer in Jewish concert music? I think a part of the reason was, is that the concert stage was where a lot of Jewish music was happening in this particular period. In a sense, there was almost like a staging of Jewish life that was happening in concert halls and also on vinyl. Um, before um, Theodore Bekel sort of um, revolutionized our concept of Jewish music, really um, sort of performing the relationship between Jewish music and folk music, which was very popular at the time. Most performances of, of Jewish music happened in a conventional piano and voice classical concert orientation. And that's the sort of time period and the aesthetics out of which a lot of this music comes. It was music that was performed for an audience, but it wasn't any less Jewish or any less prayerful for all of that. I think it even performed the function of connecting listeners to those elements. Um, it allowed them to indulge in the performance of Jewishness and to really get in touch with uh, a certain kind of authenticity. And what was really interesting is it allowed female vocalists as well to inhabit the public performance of Jewishness outside of the domestic sphere. So this has been a little bit of um, a survey of Yiddish art song as a genre. I really would love it if um, you took it upon yourselves <laughs> to do a little bit of exploring too, um, as I did when I first discovered this. What I'm going to do is put in the chat a link to the Florida Atlantic University Judaica Sound Archive. What this is is a free online archive that has 100 years of recorded Jewish music of all kinds. There's music from the very beginning of recorded music, some of the greatest cantors of the turn of the century. There's Jewish music from the mid-century. There's um, Israeli Mizrahi rockers um, that you can listen to. There's kind of um, like bossa nova influenced like Israeli and mid-century Jewish music that you can listen to. There's just a lot of amazing Jewish music. I first discovered um, Yiddish art song through this website because they had um, entire discographies of artists who sang Yiddish art song on this website. And it's basically formed the bulk of my repertoire as a performer ever since then. 
Um, I really want to thank you all for joining me today and listening to all of this music um, in a language which probably not a lot of you speak. I only speak it so well myself. Um, and yeah, I just encourage you to, to um, look through this website, look through other recordings and explore and find something that you can connect with as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Anthony. That was a beautiful presentation. And thank you so much um, for sharing that resource as well. Um, we'd love to open up um, a few minutes here for some questions. If anyone would like to, you can always um, write something in the chat or feel free to raise your hands and unmute and ask a question that way as well. Hi, Chuck. Yeah, hi. hi. Hi, Anthony. Thanks so hey. much. It was fantastic. Learned a lot. Um, so I'm not sure this is something that you didn't already describe, but just to clarify. So you did mention that the art, Yiddish art music is made up or reflects many different genres of music. Mm -hmm. So did it not become, in quotes, Yiddish art music until it came to the United States? Or would you say that it was in some instantiation art music while still in Eastern Europe? It's interesting because I think the the spaces in which it was probably performed in Eastern Europe were specifically in kind of art spaces were performed in salons and in concert halls. So I think it definitely was art song at the time. But what's interesting is that the material that it came from were from other Jewish spaces, um, were from Shtetlach, um, former shtetls, um, were from um, religious spaces, from synagogues and that kind of thing. So there's an interesting sort of um, dynamic between the sources, the cultural sources of this music, that being kind of regular Jewish life, and then the places in which that's performed and kind of aestheticized by composers and by performers, which is in the concert hall and in salons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. That's good. Judy, you look like you have a question. I can see it in your face. <laughs> I, I was wondering if you... Um... You think it's a way we can embrace our schmaltz? <laughs> embrace our schmaltz? I, um, well, I would love to know what you mean by schmaltz. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I think it's a fair number of these are, are sentimental. Yes, they are sentimental and they are nostalgic. And I think what's interesting is that as opposed to other kinds of sentimentality or nostalgia, what this has the potential of doing is connecting us with parts of ourselves and helping us sort of find what is the continuity between the lives of the people that are depicted in these songs and our own lives as well. What I think is interesting about this and what I will say in, in the way in which these songs really exist as a Jewish text as much as any other Jewish text is that ultimately they are about the, the life of a Jew. The, that is what it is to be Jewish in the world. That is what a lot of these songs are about. And I think there's a lot of interesting continuities between what it was like to be Jewish in the world for the lives of the people in these songs and what it is to be Jewish in the world today. I think very little uh, on a spiritual level has changed. And in that sense, these songs have a lot to give to the people who decide that they're interested in them. Yeah, so I mean, you know, you can say it's schmaltz, but I'll tell you, as a rabbitson, right? My husband's a rabbi. I make Shabbos dinner nine times out of ten. Schmaltz is very useful. It <laughs> tastes good. You put it in your food. It makes it something that you want to eat, something that you want to consume. So if you're asking me if Yiddish art song um, is schmaltz, 
totally in like the best kind of way. <laughs> well, it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the role of country music where mm. you talk about, you know, I lost my job. She left me. Um, yeah. I don't have any money. My dog died, whatever. I mean, these are just daily concerns that people have. And, well, like, you know, yeah, like country, like country music, like these songs are, ba- are, are come out of a folk tradition many times. And they're basically about the lives of ordinary people. So, I mean, that's very astute. I've never made that connection before, but that totally makes sense. It is a kind of country music. It's just old country music. <laughs> Aglaia, I hope I'm pronouncing your name properly. I think you have a question. Very close. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So I was just wondering if you have recorded any of this, because I'd like to hear you sing. I have. Yeah. So like I've been singing this repertoire for 10 years. So I have had, I've have had um, recordings of it. I've even written some songs myself uh, with my collaborator, Dimitri Gaskin. I have an entire album of new songs that we've written. Um, And in my first album, Convergence, I take some of these songs and I combine it with African-American folk material that I think it matches up very closely with. So I'm going to drop a link there. This is me singing um, a song called Dergamoranigen. It's one of my favorite songs. You'll see. (laughs) You'll see when you watch this. It's a song I feel very strongly about and that I perform very passionately because I just think it's a really beautiful piece of music. And it's, yeah, it's all of the things that I've been talking about. It's, you know, it's funny. When I was an opera singer, um, sometimes it was a little difficult for me um, because like when you're an opera singer, you're expected to play all these different kinds of very grand roles, right? You'll be like, you can be like a duke or you can be like a king or you can be like a Viking, or you can be a god, or you can be God himself. You know, you're playing all of these roles. In order to be a Yiddish singer, all you have to be is a Jew. <laughs> so I manage, you know, but I try to make that into something that that people can enjoy on an aesthetic level, but also um, get into on an emotional level. You know, some I try to connect with my audiences through this music. And I've been very lucky that I have this music to connect with audiences. Um, I've performed it all over the world. You know, I've performed in Israel, I've performed in Germany, I had a tour of Poland. And what's amazing is that it's this music and, and kind of the sort of international history of Yiddish that has allowed me to be able to perform it in a bunch of different places. So, um, yeah, I, I, um, you, there's recordings of me. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. This one is good. So listen to this one. <laughs> I'll tell you personally, like recording is usually a very hard experience for me because I think I do most of my best singing in front of an audience. I need an audience to be able to sort of energetically interact with. And I get a lot of sort of the emotion uh, uh, that I express in my singing directly from the audience. And I, I have a very close relationship with them. You know, sometimes I'll get up and I'll sing something and someone will tell me, my father used to sing this song or my father used to sing this melody or you sang this lullaby. And like, I know half of that lullaby because my grandmother used to sing it and they never really knew 
that there was anybody out there who had done anything with the, with this music, with this piece of culture. Um, and they're completely surprised to encounter it from the concert stage. And it's always really nice to have that experience with an audience because it's so much more personal than if I got up there and, you know, sang Rigoletto or something like that. Like this is actually something from people's lives. And I feel like that's the potential that Yiddish art song has is it has the potential to create connections between the performer and, and their audience. I'm surprised nobody's asked me to sing. Now I'll tell you, I, I just got back from a trip to a uh, front um, from Louisville where I'm doing a concert next um, January and it's very exciting. It's um, there's been a concert series with the Louisville Orchestra for the past two years, exploring kind of the relationship between um, black and Jewish culture. So in this concert, there's going to be me, there's going to be the other half of my duo, Dimitri Gaskin. Um, there is going to be the entire Louisville Orchestra. There's going to be the St. Stephen's Gospel Choir. There's going to be an amazing uh, musician named Josh Dolgan, um, who, who is a hip hop artist who samples Jewish vinyl. So he'll oh, be wow. sampling on stage. Um, Fred Wesley, who was the trombone player for James Brown, is going to be uh, writing arrangements for some of these things. It's a crazy concert. I'm very excited about it. But it's just one example of what the world of, of Yiddish uh, art song, like where it's brought me to some very unexpected places. And once again, I feel very lucky to be a performer of this particular genre. Um, I'm very easy to find. Um, I think Eddie is asking. Uh, uh, how my work can be followed. Um, one, there's not a whole lot of black guys in the Yiddish game. So, you know, you could literally just put in like black person Yiddish and I'll like be like the second or third thing that comes up. But luckily uh, my name's Anthony Russell and um, by some strange, um, you know, movement of Google, I'm the first Anthony Russell you will get if you put my name into Google. My website is there and you can see um, all of the work that I've been up to, as well as some of the writing that I've done around the subject of Yiddish. I had an article um, in June 2020, which went mildly viral, called Translating Black Lives Matter into Yiddish, which was um, a exploration of how the Yiddish language has talked about Black people and ways in which we can find ways of talking about Blackness that don't in involve the pejorative. Um, that would that would require an entire other session to even explain to you. <laughs> um, so if you're interested, perhaps I will see you soon. Yes. Um, once again, I want to thank all of you for joining me this afternoon in this little survey of Yiddish art song. And I hope that you'll take an opportunity to try to find out more about this and other kinds of music in Yiddish and Jewish music in general, because I think it's great. And there are many people out there who are doing this, who are my colleagues and dear friends. So thank you so much for, for spending this time with me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was an amazing presentation. We're so lucky to have you here. And uh, before we wrap up, I'll just tell everyone about our next event, which will be next Thursday on November 2nd at 1 p.m. Pacific. Um, we'll be hearing from Rabbi Sarit Horwitz on women's sexual assertiveness and exploration of Talmudic pre uh, perspectives. So hope you can all join us for that as well. And thank you all for being here with us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected.
If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.